Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Knut uh, Jakobsen, who is at the University of Bergen in Norway. We are, of course, talking about his fascinating new book, Yoga in Modern Hinduism. Hello, Knut. How are you doing today? Very fine, thank you. So how did you stumble upon writing this book? I think uh, it started... uh... I have to go back to 1990, because in 1990, I came to Benares uh, uh, to study with Ram Chankavatacharya, who I was at, by that time a student at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and I worked with Jerry Larson, and he had uh, worked with Ram Chankavatacharya, and he recommended that I contact him. He wanted his uh, students to work with the pundits to, to kind of learn how they dealt with texts. Because we were told that we should learn not only uh, how kind of Indologists dealt with Sanskrit texts, but also what it meant, they, these texts meant in contemporary India. And uh, then I met Ram Bhattacharya. And uh, in, in a way, I was told that yeah, I, I had a, just a view that he was a traditional pundit who was a specialist in, in Sankhya. And, uh, but then uh, he gave me some texts from this uh, Kapilmat, uh, written by the guru, especially his guru, uh, Dharma Mega Aranya. So I discovered that he, in a way, was uh, in connection with a living Sankhya Yoga uh, gr- group. Uh, and, uh, and then I uh, spent uh, almost two years in Benares up to March 1996. And then a few months later, Ram Shankar died. So then uh, I was, of course, uh, this was, uh, uh, I mean, I was very fond of him. So, so that was uh, very, I mean, it was a very sorrowful event. So I was thinking what to do. And I think one way to deal with it was to go to Kapilmat in Madhupur. Uh, and uh, so in, uh, about which I knew very little, I had been given these books. Uh, also, as I write in the book, uh, A Catechism of Sankhya Yoga, which I found really fascinating. And so I was very curious about uh, this uh, institution. And... Uh, and then uh, I went there in 99, maybe January or late 1998. And then I got uh, started to think that I would write about them. It was not uh, a very easy group to research because uh, the Kapilmat the institution in, in, in Madhupur uh, visited by very few people. And uh, in the beginning, I didn't know quite um, how things were organized there. Um, for, for instance, the institution that the guru is locked into a, in a cave, and he meets the, the people only five days, the first five days in the Bengali month. So except for those five days, there are hardly any people there. So visits had to be timed, etc. So, so then... Uh, so, so then the, the book, in a way, grew from, from uh, those that uh, interest in what uh, a, a living Sankhya Yoga tradition 
would be like because it was something uh, unique. Uh, I, I think maybe the only living Sankhya yoga tradition and then with a very unclear origin. I mean, where did it come from? Yeah. I mean, I, I was very surprised. So I was, so was this an ancient tradition or was it a modern tradition? Uh, what kind of tradition was this? So obviously you've stumbled upon this fascinating discovery and maybe to underscore for some of our listeners, you've stumbled upon um, a living Sankhya Yoga uh, mat. So maybe you can, maybe you can unpack uh, the novelty of this discovery for those who may not be as steeped in Hinduism as folks mm -hmm. like you and I. Why, if, if you were in some sort of... Uh, uh, a Christian country and you stumbled upon a monastery, right? This is a very different kind of uh, situation than just stumbling upon uh, a monastic tradition of ancient India. Why is this a unique phenomenon? Uh, I, I think the uniqueness is that we think about Sankhya as uh, an ancient tradition uh, and not a living tradition. And um, this, this kind of the the Sankhya textual tradition, I mean, it, it flourished a few hundred years in ancient India, and it, uh, with Yukti Deepika, maybe 8th, ninth century, the last kind of classical text, then it, in a way, uh, had a revival in uh, maybe 14th, 15th century, but then, again, uh, not uh, a dominating school at all. Um, and uh, where if you and the uh, the, the indologists uh, also in the Indian indologists like uh, Rajendra Mitra looking for pundits who worked on Sankhya didn't find anyone. So it was uh, in a way as a as a pundit tradition also not a living tradition in the nineteenth century. Uh, <laughs> In uh, the, the second point is that, um, I mean, with Jain and Buddhist traditions, there are a, a lot of uh, uh, archaeological remains. There are a lot of texts telling what these monks were doing in the past. But what a Sankhyan, uh, what a Sankh the Sankhyans were doing is not, I mean, there are no um, uh, descriptions of their practices. Uh, so, so that was, uh, I, I saw here a, a possibility to see what, the, what were Sankhyans doing. I mean, you had both lay followers and sannyasins. So, so what would that be like? Um, so, so Sankhya is one of the six um, Orthodox classical philosophical schools of ancient India. Um, and there are others that are uh, much more common in living tradition. Um, would you say this is the, uh, to our knowledge, only living Sankhya school? Uh, no, there, there are other, there have been other modern gurus who, uh, uh, who have called themselves Sankhyans. But I would say this is the only monastic tradition of, uh, how should I say this, 
who love some sort of sankhya orthodoxy. I think that's the correct thing to say. So you've stumbled upon this um, this mutt uh, where folks are adhering to some sort of um, orthodox sankhya ideal. Um, so the book is called Yoga in Modern Hinduism. What does yoga have to do with sankhya? All right. So uh, yoga in this uh, connection means the yoga of the Yoga Sutra and the Patanjali Yoga Shastra. That is yoga as one of the six philosophical systems. Now that is quite different from, uh, I mean, it's a very small part of what we call yoga. But uh, in modern India, this text of yoga was in a way revived and had an enormous impact on the modern, I mean, the, the global yoga movement. Uh, this was the text that Vivekananda chose to translate. And when he was asked to give lectures on yoga in the United States, he chose uh, the Yoga Sutra uh, to, as, uh, as uh, the source of yoga. Um, now, so it is uh, the source of one one source of yoga philosophy. But this text, the Yoga Sutra, and its com- auto-commentary, the Vyasa Bhasha or Yoga Bhasha, uh, is uh, a, a Sankhya text. So uh, there are, in a way, two schools of Sankhya. One is the, the, the Sankhya school of the Sankhya Karika, and the other is the Sankhya Yoga school of the Yoga Sutra and the commentary tra- tradition on that text. So uh, this uh, Sankhya uh, movement believed that the founder of Sankhya, Kapil Muni, Kapila, was also the founder of yoga, uh, because it's the same philosophy, according to them. And Sankhya is the theory part. Yoga, Patanjali Yoga Shastra is the practice part. Uh, now, in, in kind of modern, when we think about the six darshanas, Sankhya and Yoga are, are often paired. So it's well known that their philosophy, uh, I mean, that uh, the, 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 the Yoga philosophy is a sort of Sankhya philosophy. But with the popularity of this text, uh, and also because it was joined with Vedanta for, a few, for some centuries, it has many different interpretations. And in most environments, it's interpreted almost like a Vedanta text, I think. So tell us about some of your experiences um, at the Kapil Mart, uh, This, uh, in terms of the representation of this um, ancient living Sankhya Yogan tradition. Yes, it's... Uh, <clears throat> I mean, um, Dave, uh, I mean, Haryaharana, the Aranya, who was the f- founder of this movement, he was um, a very good Sanskritist, and um, he also was very well aware that the Patanjali Yoga Shastra was a, a Sankhya text. So that was his main idea, in a way, that, uh, that uh, Sankhya and Yoga are two aspects of the same philosophy. Uh, so uh, these uh, uh, f- members of this um, not the lay persons, they um, 
are lo very loyal to the Sankhya uh, philosophy. And um, in a way, and I think have a feeling that uh, this uh, Sankhya philosophy has not been, in a way, recognized uh, as a major Indian philosophy, as it should have been in, in the kind of living Indian Hindu environment. Now, there is uh, something I should say about the context of this uh, Kapilmat, is that Madhupur was, uh, I mean, why Madhupur? It's a small city. It was in uh, Bengal presidency, then in Bihar, and now in Jharkhand. But um, in the uh, early 20th century, it was um, a place where the kind of upper caste elite, uh, Calcutta uh, people, did have uh, um, second homes, that is, homes that they used for holidays. Uh, and uh, so very many of the devotees are from those families who had uh, who met Harihananda Aranya uh, because the family had houses there. So, it, so this was kind of an elite uh, population called the Badralok, I don't know. Uh, uh, so this was kind of an elite uh, part of the Calcutta uh, environment. So, so many of the followers in, in Madhupur are from that uh, type of background. So I was curious what what did what did, did it mean for these people to be Sankhya yogins? What did they do? Um, for instance, if you go to modern yoga, it will be asanas and pranayam, and there, it will be uh, taught in classes. So what was yoga for them? It was one of my and, and this was and this is also important then. This uh, yoga movement started before the creation of kind of the modern global yoga. So there is no asana, no pranayam. It's uh, ethics, yama niyama, and then samadhi meditation. They also distinguish very clearly with what yoga is for a sannyasin and what yoga is for lay people. Uh, as the sannyasin can aim for kaivalya. But for lay people, uh, that is impossible. So their main practice when they are at uh, Kapilmat, and also that is to be practiced at home, is actually the recitation, melodious recitation of Sanskrit slokas about Sankhya and Sankhya Yoga, composed by Hari Harananda Aranya. So they, for 45 minutes in the morning, they recite these slokas by heart, uh, and the same with a little bit shorter in the evening. And I think these are intellectuals. I, I think they just couldn't just sit 45 minutes and say, say a mantra. So instead they have memorized then these very complicated Sanskrit slokas about Sankhya teachings, which they then recite, sing together. They preferable at home, they should recite them alone. So because aloneness is a very big thing in for this Kapilmat tradition. So there's a number of, of fascinating things that you've just said. Maybe we can unpack them 
a little bit. So in terms of um, what we can call the eight limbs of, of classical yoga, as understood now, especially in the modern West, mm. um, maybe you can mention the eight limbs and, and, and underscore that uh, this tradition um, relies upon really the, the, the first two and the last. Mm. So, so then for our audience, uh, so, talk about the so, eight limbs of yoga. So yamani yama are kind of ethical uh, kind of preparations. It has to do with uh, with the behavior and um, exterior things like ahimsa, uh, speaking the truth, celibacy, and uh, <clears throat> then comes uh, asana and pranayam. Which, that is uh, kind of body practices and breathing practices, which are, and especially asanas, that's body practices, has, is the dominating uh, element in modern globalized yoga, uh, pranayam in, to a certain degree also. And after that, the kind of a, a control of the senses, pratyahara, and then the three last, dharana, uh, dhyana, and samadhi, which are about the concentration of the mind. So they emphasize, emphasize then yama niyama, that is ethical practices, and then uh, mental concentration. And uh, how do they justify that uh, they don't pra practice asana and pranayam? Then they say that, I mean, because of the samskaras, that is your, your previous lives, uh, if you are attracted to Sankhya Yoga, it means that in a previous life you have already perfected asana and pranayam. So that if you are kind of attracted to Sankhya Yoga, mental meditation, it means that you are already beyond this uh, bodily practices. I, I, I think also this movement will be very critical of of uh, of uh, these of, of these other parts of yoga. And uh, I, I write in a book, this Hari Arananda Aranya, he wrote uh, a, a kind of a fictional autobiography. And in that, uh, he criticizes almost every other type of, of yoga. I mean, he, he didn't find one honest sannyasin when he traveled around, not one honest yogin, and he hits in all directions. He hits at, uh, without mentioning any specific groups, but he hits that in, I think, Ramakrishna mission by saying that if people are interested in doing social service, do social service. You don't have to be a sannyasin to do social service. And, uh, and then other types. So he had a very, in a way, gloomy view of the sannyasin phenomena, which kind of was typical, I think, for the Badralok culture at that time. So just a short quip, it, uh, it's, uh, his writings about him, his own life are a combination of, um, of hagiography and an autobiography. So maybe an auto-hagiography <laughs> would be a good term, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but it's understandable that uh, insofar as he is uh, aiming to, uh, to garner and to, to solidify interest uh, and justification for, for his path as valid, he will necessarily critique the others. Um, he was very young the, when he wrote it. So. Yes, yes, a hot-headed yogi. Uh, now, now this this is an important point. This this a very important point. I think this this tension between the path for the renouncers, 
who are aspiring after Kaivalya and the path for the householders mm-hmm. and the different praxis given to each. This is a tension, in my view, that's really at the heart of Indian religion. Mm-hmm. And could you say a little bit about that tension and how it's either um, reconciled or sidestepped in this path? Yes, I, I mean, um, the, the guru who is uh, then a sannyasin, he um, is locked into permanently into a cave. So that, uh, that role is in a way taken to some extreme that it's even a permanent physical separation uh, with the lay people. Uh, his, daily li- his daily life is totally private. He cannot be observed, whatever he, he, he does. And um, so the difference between lay people and, and, the, and, the, and the, at least the guru here is enormous. And at, the ta- at this time, there are no other sannyasins. I mean, there, there were some others before. And, and but the the lay people um, can I mean I mean the idea here is that sankhya yoga is a very difficult path and it takes many lifetimes uh, so that um, even uh, like see let's say Hariharananda Aranya um, I think believe that he had practiced sankhya yoga in previous life maybe also in ancient India. And then his samskaras, his practices from that time, could be reactualized in 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 the present present time, so that in a way practices are not lost, but that but samskaras are very. It's a, a big job to change them, because they are habits, uh, so that it's not uh, so so that's looked at as a kind of a slow process. So uh, if you are a Sankhya lay person in this life, you change a bit. But so then maybe next life you will be a sannyasin or, or maybe not. But it's, it's, it's not considered any, it's not wrong to be a lay person at all. If, because then, I mean, you have other responsibilities, uh, but then you change a little bit. Is this path um, geared primarily towards laity? Yeah, I, I think maybe, I mean, uh, it is a, un, a unique tradition in that sense that you had the guru who was then, I mean, you have a lineage of gurus now, the, the third in the, in the lineage. And um, certainly for the first two, uh, they were, uh, I think, maybe their goal was attainment of Kaivalya, and they were also admired for that. Uh, so, uh, so, but uh, these uh, very few people would want to become sannyasins, uh, so that they do admire those who who choose that kind of life, uh, and uh, also with a very strict kind of lifestyle of the kapilmat. I think they have told me that. Some persons come, some sannyasins come, and they stay for a while, but then they leave uh, because not very much is going on. They often want the more social context that, in a way, often the sadhu life is very social. Even if their ideal is solitude, they, many of them don't, in a way, practice it. But here is a movement that actually practice solitude. And that, uh, for some people, that becomes, in a way, 
maybe you went eventless. That's not maybe what I was after. I think maybe also that there are there are not that much teaching going on. So it's uh, it has uh, there maybe it's it's very much um, movement that focus on on now on the guru and the relations the, the meeting with the guru those five days in the in the month when he is available in the in the window of the cave so then uh, I sometimes I felt that it was like a, a kind of a large family that that's and that it's a kind of a break from city life most of them live in Durgapur and Kolkata so so Madhupur is countryside so it's a way to get in a way to be cons to I mean that Sankhya Yoga for them is being those few days in Madhupur away from work, away from city life, meeting other persons that they have met for very many years. Maybe their parents were also friends and and uh, followers of the same guru. So a spiritual retreat center in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, you mentioned a bit earlier that uh, the prescription for the laity on this path is the recitation of Sanskrit mantra, stotrams that were actually composed by, by um, Hariharananda. This, uh, can you say more about this or how folks related to this? Uh, is it, uh, was it acceptable that he actually composed? Was it, um, did you get the sense that those verses had the same authority as verses in perhaps much more ancient and established um, texts? Or did you get the sense that this was uh, folks related to this in an insular way and understood that this was part of their guru's lineage? This fascinates me, right? Yeah. I think um, sometimes, uh, I've thought about that, sometimes we kind of think that you know, there is this break with modernity but but I, I'm not sure if that's I mean Aranda, I don't think he thought that this was a break with modernity. I think he thought that he was in continuity with older tradition, and uh, yeah, it. Yeah, I also found it fascinating. I think what defines actually being a lay devotee of in the in the kapilmat uh, or being a sankhya yoga devotee is that you recite these mantras morning and evening. I mean that's what makes you part of that community. So so if so, uh, the, and it's it's part of a kind of devotion to the guru and to the lineage of the gurus, and uh, at the same time an expression of the sankhya yoga teaching, uh, and uh, an expression of an you know, an identity. It's it's in a way what builds the, this Sankhya Yoga community, what they have together, uh, because the emphasis is on aloneness, uh, solitude, silence. But uh, here, this they have in common. Uh, so then, who pursues? Uh, who who undertakes the pursuit of this ideal? Uh, who grapples with this? Philosophy. Uh, where is that dimension in this path? Uh, yeah, that's a, a good question. Um, I mean, Ram Chankabhatacharya certainly he did uh, take a PhD at the university. 
and studying of the Puranas. He was both a scholar and a Sankhya Yoga, and he dealt with this uh, meaning intellectually. Uh, and um, uh, another person um, whom I write about in the book, he's, he's started his own uh, build his own monastery or what to call monastery ashram temple and started his own tradition and some other of these sannyasin did write books uh, so um, i think the first brahmacharya i think actually he's after 20 years he returned to lay life uh, there was uh, when I started uh, this uh, fieldwork, very long fieldwork. Uh, there was uh, a monk, Rita Prakash, so he was there for very many years, and I learned a lot from him. But he uh, left the movement. Uh, there are only rumors why he left, so I don't mention anything about that in a book, I, and I will not mention anything here either. But he, these, so there are some sannyasins. And uh, and uh, uh, and there are a few people coming from new. Sometimes new devotees come. Some visit out of curiosity. A new phenomena is that some people from who had encountered yoga in, let's say, in Mom, one of the famous Mumbai schools or other schools, they come to 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 visit, stay for five days. So there are, uh, but. Uh, uh, it's a very small movement, and people are very happy with that because they want to have the uh, peaceful surroundings. They don't want, wouldn't want very many people to come. So this this somewhat insular group of laity that engage in this mutt as a, a means of perhaps spiritual retreat. Uh, you have a chapter. Um, that talks about material religion. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think it'd be very insightful in terms of uh, pointing to a real tension in this tradition. Hmm. So the material religion, what have you found in your research? Yes, um, um, I mean, the, the monastery uh, is built in a certain style this uh, style has been repeated in in other uh, in other uh, kapil mat or kapil ashrams also. Let's speak maybe of the, I mean the guru parampara is is important part of the of the of the material religion that is uh, kapila as the admired first uh, teacher, and then but then it goes directly to Hariharana and Aranya from from uh, from Kapila, and they have the Samadhi Stanas. But then uh, the teaching are also illustrated with statues and art. Uh, I think Bhaskara Aranya in, in Madhupur, he, he was interested in that. He had, he had background in Shantiniketan, he had studied there. Uh, so he thought that that would be a way to Kind of to 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 reach people with it with with the teaching. So they are illustrating, for instance, with a skull, which is I think some common among in some ashrams, which means that that's how life is going to end. So don't get attached to 
things that are not eternal in a way, things that does things that do not survive death. And uh, they are also, yeah, some of uh, the, the the teachings of uh, of Hiranya and Hiranya is also uh, in status. Um, but the, the, the monastery in in Sarenat, um, the Kapilash Sankar there uh, has a lot have copied some sentences, so they have decorated the whole. Um, in a way, the, the mat with some sentences from the Yoga Sutra and from Sankhya Karika, so which is the kind of the key teaching what one should remember then, uh, and I think that's part of the of the kind of the the key teaching here um, in the Yoga Sutra two fifteen. I think it says that for the wise person, everything is suffering, so that is a key uh, teaching in the Kapilma tradition that uh, that you shouldn't get uh, yes that's uh, yeah. which is very close to the the, the saying the, the kind of the saying of the, the, the in the Buddhist tradition uh, and then uh, the idea that uh, the, the identity of the person because it Sankhya and Sankhya has to do with uh, who we really are in, in a way that is, uh, it's a cultivation of a, a witness consciousness. Uh, everything that can be observed of the witness by the witness consciousness is not our real identity, and that would be like thoughts, body, etc. So that uh, uh, everything connected to change is not the real identity, but the kind of the pure consciousness, the witness consciousness, is. Uh, uh, our real identity. So the practices has, in a way, to do with this cultivation of witness, uh, witness consciousness. And so the practice, by the practice, do you mean the recitation of these stotras? What are the... Um, see, the tension here is um, you have the symbol of the skull that represents, you know, uh, the, the impermanence and eventual dissolution of all things. And yet this symbol was created. This is a, a material representation mm. for the impetus to denounce or transcend or wean yourself off of the material itself. And it, it, perhaps it's me, but I see a fascinating tension here mm. in terms of, of, of um, in terms of, drawing on this highly, you know, world-eschewing philosophy, um, the, the, the paragon, the exemplar of which is literally in a cave, mm. and yet uh, that renouncer, that one seeking Kaivalya, is the epicenter of folks in the world coming for their spiritual retreat, surrounded by material culture representing that ideal. Mm. Um, and so this idea of the, the goal um, of Sankhya being a realization of, of Purusha or seeing beyond the artificial senses of self, um, who's, who's engaged in that really in this tradition? I think... Uh only the guru, and he is admired for being engaged in it. 
and um, that's part of his of the admiration and i think he kind of represent the truth of the teaching uh, that the idea that he is practicing it uh, is in a way a proof of the that's the, that of the truth of sankhya yoga and then they themselves try to kind of understand some of the teaching they they recite the, the mantras and then uh, consider it a very difficult way. And um, that the philosophy is difficult is also uh, part of the admiration that, and especially I asked once Bhaskara, I mean, difficult questions, and sometimes he would answer that he is a student of Hariharananda Aranya also. So, so Hariharananda Aranya is thought about as a really great thinker and a great philosopher, uh, this, I mean, uh, one who understood Sankhya and Sankhya Yoga, and then uh, the, the current guru also looks up to him as, uh, uh, so it's, it's not a kind of an, 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 there is no easy fix, uh, it is considered a very, uh, <laughs> a goal that is very hard to attain. And the part of the admiration of the guru is that he is, has taken on the practice to, to, to attain this goal. Uh, uh, fascinating. And there's also this dimension of above and beyond uh, reverence for one's uh, preceptor. Uh, in this case, um, Hariharananda uh, is understood to have attained samadhi. So he is... Uh, liberated in this sense and so he is such a one that is um that is embodying what one is seeking irrespective of being uh one's guru this is someone who at the end of their life presumably i've gleaned from 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 your research that um he's venerated as somebody who has succeeded in this quest i think so yeah Uh, there's a site i believe there's a site uh, that is revered on the property in terms of where where he had attained samadhi, correct? Yes, there is uh, a samadhi which is uh, uh, behind the, the cave. So Dharma Mega Aranya and Harirana Aranya, they have this. There's samadhi stanas, which is their their bodily remains in a way are are there uh, also. So there are rituals around this samadhis. So they are venerated. Uh, so uh, every morning you, f- you first venerate the, 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 these two gurus, and then meet, you meet in the, in the, in the, in the kapilmat, in, in, the, in the building, and, and sing then the, 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 the stotras, which also pay homage to these, the guru parampara and the teaching. Would the veneration of the samadhi site would it take on uh, the idiom of bhakti or what we we consider as puja? But um, I, yes, very, but very light puja, I would say. That is, uh, a few people, not all, would uh, light incense, and they would um, stand for a few seconds in veneration. Uh, so. Uh, so that will be the, the kind of the morning routine that they go down to the uh, Kapilmat, 
short veneration in the samadhis and then circumambulation also. It's a circle, circular uh, samadhi, and then they will go into the the kapilashram. So it has it's uh, it has a, some bhakti quality to it, but very light. I would say not very emotional. Some uh, uh, some reverence, and then uh, with the with the with the stotras, the stotras also state, you know, the, the wish to attain samadhi, the wish to attain uh, freedom from rebirth, kaivalya, etc. So, so in the stotras, they also state what is the, the, the goal for, 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 for everyone to attain. Uh, but, uh, uh, of course, uh, I think already Hari Arananda Aranya uh, encountered this uh, this uh, phenomenon that very few people were interested in it. Uh, so then, so uh, so we thought it was because it was a very difficult philosophy, um, and and very not everyone. Very, yeah, I think he would say that we shouldn't expect you know very many people to be very interested in in the Sankhya Yoga path. That that would be a natural thing. So. Uh, so it, it it isn't it 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 hasn't kind of been very in, interested in becoming popular. Although 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 I was surprised to read by Ram Shankar Bhattacharya that he uh, had this expectation that the whole world should should know about Kapila because I think he was the first philosopher, the first person to discover that uh, it was possible to get out of samsara. So, so therefore, I mean, Buddha was a disciple of this teaching, according to them. So, 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 so Kapila is an, an immensely important figure for humanity, but uh, he is kind of almost forgotten. So, so, uh, so they they are kind of aware of it that uh, this is an extremely important tradition, but very few people know about it and. And uh, it's natural that few people would be interested also. It's not a source of sorrow in any way. Uh, it's uh, also, I think, I think that is a good thing because of uh, peace and solitude are, are, uh, are kind of the highest values. And uh, it would be strange if a movement that preaches solitude would be enormously popular, maybe. And then, if it was, it wouldn't uh, generate the phenomenon at all. I mean, millions of people would go to one place to to celebrate the idea of solitude. I would guess it is rather um, counterintuitive to <laughs> spread the word of solitude. <laughs> However, it seems that we're all sort of spreading the word of solitude in our social distancing at this time. <laughs> um, so we have we have we obviously have very different methods and. and very different data. Um, uh, you're studying um, lived religious practice, and I study Sanskrit narrative. Mm. Let's see what sort of pulled me into grad school for my master's was Rama and this 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 bafflingly uh, sage-like attitude towards his his duty as a warrior, as a king, mm. um, right? That and and that sort of that intrigue has never left me. Um, mm. But I, you know, one of the ideas that I like playing with is what I call the Dharmic double helix, right? There are these two poles of, mm. of, of Hinduism. 
mm-hmm. in terms of uh, world affirmation and world denial, or, or um, I mean, nuverty and poverty mm-hmm. in terms of the Mahabharata. And, and here it is, here it is. Here you have this utterly um, idealistic, world-issuing, isolationist uh, path that is paradoxically, the isolation is the epicenter of this of this uh, meeting place for interested spiritual aspiring community to have a congregation and and sing together and revere this ideal together and 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 like the strands of the double helix they never meet they never touch but somehow they're they encircle each other to create this this fabric and and that's one of the things that really fascinates me about this this um, obscure but uh, I feel important uh, tradition that you've stumbled upon. Um, what's it like today? What are what are the numbers like? Is it a thriving community today? No, I wouldn't say so. And uh, and the current uh, Guru Vaskara is more than seventy years old. There is no sannyasin, and uh, uh, the Guru in. Uh, in uh, the other cup, not in Sarenat, he died in 2012, and after that, it's a caretaker. There is a small community because there is one uh, important devotee there. But uh, yeah, I'm also curious what will happen uh, in the, in the coming years. Um, so, for the previous um, three teachers, this is the third teacher, correct? Yes. So, for the previous two moments of succession. Um, was it an existing student uh, who who succeeded in leading the march? Yes, the first, I mean the, the the second Guru Dharma Mega Aranya was the son of the sister of Hari Arananda Aranya. He was his nephew, and he became devotee when he was very young. So when uh, when he was nineteen, I think he started. He lived permanently in uh, Triveni, where Hari Arananda was by then. And then uh, the third guru, Baskara, is a relative of the person who gave the property to build the mat in 1925-26. And he was, he kind of changed, he met Dharma Mega Aranya when Dharma Mega Aranya was ill and he was asked to bring water and food. And then they started to talk and then he was transformed and that made him uh, he was actually a kind of a person interested in art and cricket and those things. But without during those meetings, he was transformed. So he became then the, the third. Uh, so he became a sannyasin through those meetings. And then Dharma uh, Mega Aranya died in 1985. So this, so this, so quite a few years passed by. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, so one should, would expect that there would have been a sannyasin, I mean, some sannyasin surrounding the guru, and that one of these sannyasin would be picked as a, as a guru. Uh, I mean, with the, um, but uh, as I see it now, there is no, no one person who, uh, unless something happens, of course, uh, but... Um, very many of the devotees are uh, children of, I mean, even if they are now 70 years old, it was their parents 
were devotees of the first guru. So it's also a kind of family tradition. They do, do not attract that many new people, and also they wouldn't want to. It's not on their wish list in a way. They like the peacefulness of it. Uh, but it, so it could happen that after this guru, it would be a caretaker, and then slowly, slowly it would. So, but uh, it's very difficult to predict because unpredictable things might happen. Uh, but, uh, sure, I mean, barring um, barring the emergence of a qualified successor, and it seems that given the insularity of the community, given the age of the current guru, given the requisite number of years, perhaps for proper training, um, that seems to be. Uh, let us bracket that off as not likely. So, what are the options? Either once this uh, once this current guru passes or attains samadhi, or however we want to frame that, um, the community will disband, or the community will unite around this ideal, not dissimilar from, for example. Self-realization fellowship is an example, where there was once a living guru. I think it was um, Paramahamsa Yogananda, correct? For, just to use an example, a more popular example in the modern West, where there isn't a lineage of teachers. There is no. He had no disciple whom he authorized to carry out his word, but there's his living memory and a body of teachings, and and so perhaps you know, perhaps that may well be the fate of this group, but. Yeah, that's you see. Yeah, I think very yeah. few, very few groups do actually have a, a kind of a lineage of gurus. I think most gurus just uh, is remembered, and uh, so it's kind of almost unusual that there were were this lineage. Also, with this enormous criteria that the guru should be locked into a cave. I mean, that's a, so it's kind of a surprise. You could say that there. That it did survive almost hundred years with that tradition. Uh, Haryarananda Aranya locked himself into a cave in 1925, and we are almost. I mean, 2025 is not that long. So, hundred years with that tradition. I think that's quite long. Uh, so, so that should be considered a success. Uh, whatever happens next, I think things don't last forever anyway. So. And the, Certainly. And, is the cave a site of veneration? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so, so you could imagine that people, uh, what, which, what is what happened in, in Sarnath uh, when the Guru died, that they will continue the, the rituals. I mean, the ritual singing of the Stotras will go on in the, maybe they will come there for, these same five days, the first five days in the Bengali month, and for some time, so they so that so so in a way the tradition can continue. The the the, the books are there, the, the institution is there. So so the question will be if new people w w will be interested in 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 coming to the place. Uh, what most. Um struck you or surprised you about this research? What most stuck out as a takeaway that perhaps was um, either uh, remarkable or, 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 or that you didn't anticipate in some way? 
I mean, what I um, was, uh, I mean, I was very curious about this, where did this teaching come from? Uh, and uh, there was uh, a quote that is by Farkahar, who writes about, you know, that uh, there are hardly any Sankhya and Yoga Pandits left, but in 1912, as late as 1912, he met uh, a Sankhya Yati, in Kolkata. So when um, Farkahar writes, as late as, he must have had the idea that this was you know, something from the past that was, in, in a way, almost dying out. And he continues, he never met anyone from the yoga lineage, which means the yoga sutra there. And um, I read the quote many times, but then I realized that in the Kapilmat tradition, it was also quoted first by Ram Bhattacharya. He had an enormous memory, so he would quote by heart. But the text in his quote was a little bit different. He quoted uh, Farkar as saying, as early as 1912, uh, I met uh, the, this uh, Sankhya Yoga, which means that for, for Bhattacharya, this was not an ancient tradition, but it was something new that Hari Harananda Aranya brought about. So that's uh, in the title Yoga in Modern India, that this clearly was a part of the modern revival of yoga. So I was very curious about, I mean, that was one conclusion I came to, even though uh, other authors who have not researched this tradition in particular, like to write that this was, is an kind of an ancient lineage. Uh, but uh, clearly Sankhya does not have a continuous lineage. It's has been, uh, been created and revived and revived. And this is a revival, it's not, uh, there was no uh, oral tradition that Haryarana, of Samkhya Yoga that Haryarana encountered. He learned from, uh, from a Sanskrit text. He was a very good Sanskritist. So he, in a way, uh, stumbled upon this uh, Yoga Sutra, the Vyashabhasha, and Tattva Vaisharadi by Vachasmati Mishra. So he studied this and, uh, and, uh, uh, in a cave than in in Bihar for ye- for several years, and then he kind of uh, um, uh, this Kapil uh, Mat uh, tradition came out of that. Uh, he uh, that uh, I mean he, his intellect working with a, a textual tradition and not the encounter of an an oral tradition. Uh, so would you say he was? Um innovating, reviving in some way. How would you understand what he accomplished? Yeah, I, I think uh, he revived Sankhya and Sankhya Yoga philosophy as a, as a, 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 a living teaching. And I think it, it's very, I mean, I, that's my uh, view also that the Vyasa Basha, the Yoga Sutra is a Sankhya text and that uh, he uh, in a way, uh, gave uh, an interpretation in, in continuation with the, with the classical schools. In a way, it's restarted, uh, at least as close as possible, uh, an orthodox Sankhya and Sankhya Yoga tradition, uh, which uh, uh, goes against very much of kind of uh, 
modern interpretations, I would say. So he was able to kind of revive uh, yoga, yoga as Sankhya. And uh, if you think about the global yoga phenomena, yoga has become a big, big, a big thing, but Sankhya has not been uh, revived, or it hasn't experienced the same revival, even though that is the philosophy uh, uh, of, the, of, of the Yoga Sutra and the potential Yoga Shastra. Um, another point of interest uh, seems to be that um, despite the apparent absence of a lineage of uh, Sankhya uh, experts, the practitioners, nevertheless, um, Sankhya philosophy is the scaffolding of so much Indian thought. It's so pervasive. Uh, it is, it's, um, it's the um, spiritual, philosophical backdrop of yoga, but also everything from oh, um, Ayurveda, uh, Jyotisha, Hasta Samudrika. There's so many, many philosophical um, esoteric traditions that... Um, they don't explicitly exposit Sankhya philosophy because they implicitly take it as the way the world is. So uh, the three gunas, this is just a pervasive idea. Vivekananda himself, for example, would have said, I think did say that, you know, uh, his people need more rajas, forget the sattva, you know, they need to be roused into action. And it's fascinating that this, this um, cosmology is so much a part of of so many strands of Indian thought. Would you say? And uh, I think uh, the devotees of Kapilmat will also say exactly the same. They are that uh, Sankhya is the philosophy of India, and that it is behind so many aspects of uh, uh, yeah Indian intellectual culture and uh, yes. So they would. Uh, that's how they think. Also, I agree. Of course, that, uh, that's one of the fascinating aspects of Sankhya, that it's not only the Sankhya Karika and uh, the kind of the technical philosophical tradition, but it's also a, a big part of uh, intellectual history. And, uh, and I, I think, uh, yeah, so there is kind of a, what we call, if you should call it Sankhya culture, I, I'm not sure what exactly to call it, but it's, something kind of a much broader and than the, the, the Sankhya Kairika tradition, which is a very little, small, it's a very small philosophical tradition. Uh, so that's also a, some kind of a paradoxical thing, really. That uh, Yes, it's paradoxical that it died out as a vibrant tradition in an acute sense, mm. in an immediate sense, partially because it was absorbed Right in a, in a in a grander sense. Uh, yes. so, uh, so here with Hyderabad on the Hyderabad, it's an attempt to kind of take it back, and I, I think maybe there have been attempts before also to kind of to take Sankhya back from the Vedantins or back from and and, and give it a, a kind of a Sankhya identity. Uh, so yeah, and you can see this and it, also. it really begs the question, sort of sort of to touch on the, the tension that we were talking about earlier, 
of uh, for whom is some kind of philosophy. I mean, you have you have a virtuoso like Hari Harananda uh, engaged in these austere practices uh, to the the extent to which the sadhus themselves find this much too isolationist for their liking. Right, the sadhus themselves are are, uh, are not up to the task, and so for whom is this 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 austere philosophy, you really get a glimpse into the extent to which ascetic ideology was a tremendous threat to Vedic life and to, to, to Brahmanism in that, well, if everyone's leaving the world to enter a cave, what would happen to society? Yeah. Um, is there anything in the book that you, you had hoped we touch on or key takeaways or insights or stories or, you know, is there anything else you wanted us to but I think we have uh, t- t- touched on uh, on uh, many aspects of it and uh, so uh, I mean uh, I'm aware that many of the chapters are very technical so uh, uh, but uh, but, but uh, I hope that uh, we have been able to kind of present this as an interesting group and that uh, kind of a, a kind of a kind of a little bit of a surprising as a historical phenomenon that uh, Sankhya Yoga would is also a living for some. It's also a living tradition that is in a, in a, the technical philosophy in a technical philosophical sense. Then, so. well, if we if we fail to present this in an accessible way, then the fault lies with your uh, interviewer and host, not with you, <laughs> since that's certainly my my role to bridge the technical um, with the accessible, and. Um, I think we've avoided much of the minutia, and I've, I've, I've sought clarifications in terms where potentially needed. Um, it's, it's obviously a fascinating uh, historical development it's, that, that may well, you know, may well evaporate in the not too distant future or innovate. Who knows? But I think this 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 documentation of of this tradition is is uh, obviously important for scholars of Hinduism, scholars of modern Hinduism in particular, and certainly folks who are interested in the philosophical background behind yoga, or in the West, asanas, I guess, is what folks call yoga in the West. Um, there's, there's one thing I, I had wanted to ask earlier, but I didn't want to interrupt your train of thought, and I find it fascinating. Um, I wonder how this community would respond to this, the question of, well, you folks don't need pranayama and asana because you've had so many lives doing this on the one hand. On the other hand, you're such novices, you're going to sit and chant shlokas because you can't engage in immediate practices. It's, there seems to be this, is it me or is it sort of talking out of both sides of the mouth here? Mm. Oh yes, oh, it's clearly behind this is uh, some tensions, and Rita uh, Prakash, who was the monk who was there for fifteen years and left, he suggested to the guru that they should start teaching asanas, and because then more people would come. But uh, the guru was. Uh, I mean, hundred percent against it because it goes against the teaching of Hari Aranya and the Aranya and Dharma Mega Aranya. I, I think um, 
their argument against it would be that uh, it uh, gives too much uh, attention to the body and it leads to attachment to the body. So, uh, and uh, so uh, it would be uh, counterproductive uh, for the uh, attainment of the, the real goal. Uh, from the cons from the context from the perspective of sankhya philosophy it appears then that uh hariharananda's words were prophetic for what's happening in the world at the moment where there is certainly there are certainly enormous physical health benefits to to yogic postures and there's certainly a tremendous attachment um to how well we can do them how we look when we're doing them to the culture surrounding them and uh, it, uh, what's lost is this, this this salient idea that the point of the asanas, right, uh, etymologically, is so you can sit. <laughs> the point is so that you can take seat and um, engage in these last three limbs, you know, whereby you're going inward. Um, so really, really interesting. So it's fascinating that somehow he... In, in that time, even sort of uh, anticipated that folks may be distracted by the physical postures. Um, a fascinating work. All right, so I think that's pretty much it, unless there's anything else you wanted to say before we sign off. Thank you for uh, the conversation. It was uh, really interesting to talk with you. Oh, you're welcome. It was interesting for me as well. I learned a great deal. Obviously, these interviews force me to read much more than I normally would. <laughs> so it's always a pleasure. So for those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Knut Jakobsen, who is a professor of religion at the University of Bergen in Norway. We've been speaking with him on his fascinating book, Yoga in Modern Hinduism. Uh, until next time, keep reading. Bye-bye. <laughs>